Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Tuesday morning, January the 31st, 2023. Um, Tuesday morning on the West Coast. And the news is, hardly surprising, he's back. Donald Trump, at least he's back when it comes to his various kinds of legal cases. New York Times reports um, that the Manhattan prosecutors are beginning to present the Trump case to a grand jury. Uh, and it was... A lot of headlines late last week about uh, stories of a federal prosecutor discussing charging Trump in the Stormy Daniels case when he left office, at least according to a book. The book suggests that, um, uh, that President Trump was going to get charged with campaign finance violations. I'm not sure if that ever happened. The book is called Untouchable. And appropriately, given that this is an up-to-the-minute show, the author is uh, Ellie Honig. He's also CNN's legal correspondent. Um, Ellie is joining us from the CNN studios. Ellie, uh, any up-to-the-minute updates on the untouchability or perhaps touchability of, uh, of our old friend Donald Trump? Well, Andrew, there's so many things happening so quickly, but let's start with with this hush money uh, scheme, which really the timing, I have to say, is just lucky um, for, for in terms of the book, because we learned just the other day that the Manhattan District Attorney, which is a state level prosecutor here in New York City, has essentially reopened its investigation into these hush money payments. People may remember that in the lead up to the 2016 election, Donald Trump and his entities around him paid off Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal one an adult film star, the other a Playboy model, who allegedly had had affairs with Donald Trump in order to keep silent. Well, now we learn that the state prosecutors here, the Manhattan DA, is reopening that investigation. And, and what's remarkable is I reported on this exact same thing in my book, but as the federal prosecutors across the street, the Southern District of New York, where I used to work, they considered bringing this exact charge two years ago, right when Donald Trump left office. And as I report in the book for the first time, I got inside DOJ here. Essentially, the prosecutors on the hush money case, which ended up charging only Michael Cohen, they actually believed that they had enough evidence to charge Donald Trump for the most part. There's some variation on what people on the team thought, but they ultimately decided not to charge Donald Trump federally because of various political and practical concerns, one of which was they had this idea that, well, he's done so many other things since then between obstructing the Mueller investigation between Ukraine, between January 6th had happened by this point. They figured this is very low on the list. Let's just leave, basically leave, leave this to others to do. So as a result of that, Trump was not charged right when he left office, but now it looks like we might see a state level charge coming on this. Let's be clear, uh, Ellie, your book is untouchable. How powerful people get away with it. It's not how Donald Trump no. gets away with it. So it's not just a book about Trump, but Trump right. does feature. I wonder, and I'm sure you're very sensitive to this, uh, you remember that old song, Won't Get Fooled Again? We've had so sure. many stories about, oh, this finally is the smoking gun that's going to get Trump. You, uh, back in June of last year, you wrote um, a piece about Cassidy Hutchinson, one of the Trump people who 
um, who, who, who was the witness on January 4th, uh, January 6th, you wrote that Cassidy Hutchinson is the witness America has been waiting for. Is this, uh, leaving aside the, the Hutchinson case, is this this latest case, is this the one that we really are waiting for? Is something going to be different with this than all the others? So first of all, I'm always wary of anyone who says anything's a smoking gun, and, and, and I'm always careful to not make dire predictions of this is the end. The article you showed, Cassidy Hutchinson, is the witness America is waiting for. I, I do not pr predict in that article his imminent uh, indictment. I say that her testimony given to Congress at the January 6th committee was crucial for us to understand January 6th. So I, that is not a doomsday article of, oh boy, he's about to get no, charged. No, I, I'm not mad you. Yeah. you know this mentality. So many oh, people have, have written, well, oh, finally well. we're going to get him, starting from the the tapes, the, the, the pussy tapes back before right. the election. So. so first of all, I am not a walls are closing in kind of guy. Um, second of all, I don't see it as we are going to get him. I don't, I, I don't see it as I'm not rooting for any particular outcome here. I'm trying to explain to people the way this works. And listen, I was a prosecutor for 14 years and I know, and I talk about in this book, much easier said than done, much easier to point to one thing and go right there. He's guilty. That's that lock him up. I mean, I talk in the book about the practicalities, the difficulties of trying any case of getting a unanimous jury to find someone guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, Never mind. Donald Trump or many other famous or powerful people who I discuss in the book. And that's the really sickening thing about the book in this case is we've done many shows on the profound injustice of the mass incarceration system in America. One with Jonathan Rapping, I'm sure you're familiar with his book, Gideon's Promise, another with David Rudolph on the uh, book, American Injustice, Inside Stories from the Underbelly of the Criminal Justice System. Your book touches on the profound injustice of the system is that powerful people can get away, it seems almost with murder, whereas if you're not powerful, if you're not wealthy, then the system is deeply vengeful. Is that the core message in your book? Yeah, I think that is. I'm really more focused on the, the front half of that, the powerful half of that, although I do focus on disadvantaged people as well and sort of some of the disadvantages that they have. But I think there's really several factors at play here. One is we just have certain laws, certain rules, policies, systems that inherently favor wealthy people. And we can talk about, I have basically a chapter devoted to each of them that I think is important. We have certain powerful people, uh, bosses who are expert at exploiting that, at understanding those vulnerabilities, either consciously or just sort of out of instinct and maximizing the protections. And then I am critical in the book at several points of prosecutors who I think have not done the job, who've been overly solicitous of powerful people. Again, not just Donald Trump. I talk about various other powerful figures in the book who I think have, have frankly not had the spine to go after wealthy people with vast resources and powerful legal teams. Um, and, and the one thing that I sort of do throughout the book, Andrew, is I was the, the primary type of case I did was organized crime. I became chief of the organized crime unit in, in New York. Um, and so I did real mafia cases. And uh, people, it's sort of become a, a trendy thing to say Donald Trump or whoever, fill in the blank, is like a mob boss. Um, but I make the case in, in the book that that's literally true. I, I tell all sorts of stories from my own experience as a prosecutor, which I think are interesting and fascinating and at times and at times a little bit unnerving. And I pull lessons out of them and say, this tactic right here is something that we've seen from other powerful people, CEOs, politicians, financiers, celebrities, you name it. And so I, I try to bring those to life in the book. 
Is the system improving? We did a show uh, last year with Ken Auletto, who has a show about Harvey Weinstein, Hollywood ending, Harvey Weinstein and the culture of silence. It seems as if Harvey Weinstein hasn't had a Hollywood ending. Is the system improving on some fronts? Clearly, Trump, if you believe he's guilty of something, I certainly do, although I don't know enough about it. Um, he, he, he should be nailed. But 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 Weinstein has been nailed. You you deal with him in the book. Is, is, is the system improving in terms of making the rich and powerful like Harvey Weinstein less untouchable? I actually do not think the system is improving. I think a lot of these uh, a lot of these factors are long embedded in the system. And, and I want to make clear, I talk about this in the book. You look at Harvey Weinstein, he's in, he's in prison. He's probably going to die in prison. You look at Jeffrey Epstein, he died in prison. You look at Bill Cosby, he did time in prison. But the point I make in the book is prosecutors gave away those cases in the first instance, all three of those cases, and they didn't circle back around and really seek justice until after the media blew the lid off of the incompetence or worse that we saw from those prosecutors. Take Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein was originally prosecuted down in Florida by the federal prosecutors there. The lead federal prosecutor at the time was Alexander Acosta. Now, they have Epstein dead to rights, and Acosta gets intimidated, I argue in the book, and I think we have some, we, we uncover some substantial support for this, by Jeffrey Epstein's very expensive team of lawyers, very intimidating team of lawyers, Alan Dershowitz, Ken Starr, a bunch of former federal prosecutors. And he lets Epstein off with this ridiculously light state charge where he does a few months in prison. Most of it, he gets to hang out in his lawyer's office. And that's that. Until, fast forward several years, Alexander Acosta becomes Donald Trump's uh, excuse me, labor secretary. And now this case comes back into focus. And now there's a media uproar about it. And Acosta resigns. And only then did my former office, the Southern District of New York, bring appropriate charges against Jeffrey Epstein. Same thing with Harvey Weinstein. Cy Vance, the Manhattan DA, where I sit right now, who I'm quite critical of in the book, gave Harvey Weinstein a pass. He had Harvey Weinstein on tape admitting a crime. He had a reliable witness. He declined to charge that case until media uproar doubles back. Let me reconsider. Let me take another look. He charges it. Bill Cosby, same thing. Cops and prosecutors completely bungled that case in the first instance. A new prosecutor took over. He charged Cosby, but he messed up the case as well, as did the prior prosecutor. Cosby was convicted, but then the, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court threw that case out because I think correctly, I hate to say it because Bill Cosby doesn't deserve to be out of prison, but those prosecutors absolutely screwed that case up legally and tactically. So yes, you can look at those people and say some of them met bad ends, but only when compelled when prosecutors were compelled by media or public pressure. You talk about media as the good guy, but I, I wonder if there's a another part of this narrative. We did a show, done a couple of shows with Jonathan Carl, and White House sure. cores television correspondent. He had a, a book out, Front Row at the Trump Show. To what extent, you know, CNN uh, uh, seems to present Trump as this ongoing show, all these legal and moral and financial and political ups and downs. To what extent also is the media broadly complicit in, 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 in translating some of these criminal stories into simply soap opera? I'm going to take issue, I think, with, with the premise of that question. I disagree that CNN is complicit. Well, I, I said CNN with, I didn't actually suggest CNN. I'm saying the media generally. Okay, I, I can't speak for all media, um, but I will say this. You know, there is there is a conversation that happens in the times of 
how much should we be covering Donald Trump, right? That should we be covering every tweet or he's off Twitter, you know, every truth social that he sends? And I think the answer is no. I think we've sort of reached a, a, a general understanding that we don't just respond to every piece of bait Donald Trump dangles out there. However, he's a former president. He's running for the presidency in 2024. His words, actions, and conduct are very relevant to our public world. And what happens with him moving forward, whether he's sued or indicted or convicted or none of those things, it is absolutely relevant and, and media worthy. So, you know, it, it has there has been a challenge, I think, to media. How do you cover a difficult, controversial uh, figure like this who sometimes tries to play the media? Uh, I can only speak for CNN and say, I, I, I think we've found the exact right sort of you know, middle ground to be in. We're recovering him substantively. We're taking a hard look at what he does, but he doesn't dictate our coverage and he does, we, we don't have to chase after every piece of bait that he lays out there. You've suggested that there is a, a, a Houdini-esque quality to Trump mm -hmm. when it comes to legal. Um, is he unique? I mean, does he just instinctive? Does he have, I mean, Houdini in his own way was a genius. Is there a genius? If there is a genius to, to Donald Trump, is it in this, Houdini-esque legal qualities of being perpetually uh, almost touchable, but ultimately untouchable? I think you said the exact right word. You said instinctive. I think Donald Trump, some people just can pick up a guitar and play it, right? Some people can pick up a basketball and dribble it. Donald Trump just has this instinctive gift. He has, he has what we would call street smarts, I think. Even if he doesn't consciously say, I'm going to do my business this way, he just understands how to do that. I'll give you, I'll give you an example. One thing that was very common in the mob cases and other cases that I did was really savvy bosses know how to convey their instructions and intent without saying to people, I need you to commit this crime. I need you to lie for me. I need you to you know, funnel this money, whatever the case may be. Donald Trump has always had a very strong instinctive understanding of that. And there, there's a really good example of that that I put in the book. Michael Cohen, when he was prosecuted, one of the many things he was prosecuted for was he lied to Congress. He goes in front of Congress and he tells Congress that Donald Trump stopped trying to build real estate in Moscow before the presidential election even got underway, really, in 2016. The truth was Trump was still trying to build in Moscow well into the primary season. Michael Cohen pled guilty to that. And he was asked, did Donald Trump tell you to lie? And he said, candidly, I can't say that. He said, that's not how Donald operated. I have the quote in my book, but he basically says the way he would operate is we understood what he wanted. He made it clear to us just through his normal course of dealing. It was an understood culture in the office. And all he had to do was say, hey, Michael, I know you're going in front of Congress the other day. You know, I know you'll do the right thing. And that was enough. I understood. And that really brought right to mind many of the powerful mobsters and, and other powerful criminals who I prosecuted. You are a, 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 a graduate of Harvard Law School, like my first wife. Um, is there <laughs> too much law in all this? Is the problem with America that it enables a, a Houdini-esque character like Trump to navigate the legal system? This, this, this system doesn't exist in, in other democracies. Do we need to reform um, it, not just the yeah. political and perhaps cultural media systems, but also the legal system? There is Very a there is a sort of black letter legal aspect to this, just an on the books legal element to all this. And I, I spend a chapter or two in the book 
talking about the ways in which the United States Supreme Court has slowly but surely and, and very powerfully narrowed the scope of our public corruption laws, in particular over the last decade or so. They have chopped down those laws to make it more and more difficult to charge any powerful public figure to the point where in the last six plus years since the Supreme Court really started making these decisions, we have not seen these partic this particular set of federal corruption laws used to charge a single member of Congress, a single powerful member of the executive branch, a single governor, a single federal judge, zero. Um, and, and for those who may be hearing this and think, boy, that's the other side's fault. That's the conservatives' fault. That's the liberals' fault. For all the division on our Supreme Court right now, ideological and political, this is one area where they have all been singing from the same sheet because these are unanimous rulings out of the Supreme Court. If you want to see an example of Justices Sotomayor and Kagan, very much in line with Justices Alito and Thomas, this is the one of the very few areas where they've been unanimous. And as a result of this, um, they've made it all but impossible for federal prosecutors to go after powerful elected officials. So that's an example of where our actual written laws have, have failed us. I know you cover Steve Bannon in 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 uh, in the book. Uh, we've done some shows on Bannon, one with Jen Senor, a wonderful writer for The New Yorker. Um, and we talked about how Bannon is almost overtly against American democracy. What does yeah. Bannon say? I mean, he doesn't have the intuitive, perhaps legal, Houdini-esque skills of Trump. No. He's just as threatening in his own way, just as problematic, isn't he? Steve Bannon has gotten away with with quite a bit so far and through a combination of Locke and Trump, right? Like, let's remember Trump pardoned him. So here, here's the quick rundown. Steve Bannon, first of all, you know, we don't have all the facts on this. I presume prosecutors do. Seems like he was one of the driving engines behind January 6th, but separate and apart from that, Steve Bannon got indicted by the Federal Department of Justice, by my old office, the Southern District of New York, for a scam, a straight up fraud called We Build the Wall, where Bannon and some other guys basically started raising money from Trump supporters saying, donate to this fund and we're going to build a wall on the southern border. I mean, it's, it's facially preposterous. And they said, and if you donate to this, every penny you donate goes to the wall. None of us are taking any salary, any money out of here. Shockingly, they were doing just that. And so the Southern District of New York indicted Steve Bannon and three other guys for fraud. Now, on Donald Trump's last day, his last hours in office, he pardoned Steve Bannon. But by the way, not the other three guys, because they didn't pose a threat to him, because only Steve Bannon had the ability to potentially cooperate against Trump and hurt Trump. As I say, though, in the book, once a person's been pardoned, he no longer has any incentive to cooperate. He has, he has no problems. Um, what happened since then, though, is the DA that I mentioned before, the state prosecutors across the street have now charged Steve Bannon with the state version of that conduct. So he's sort of back on the hook for that, although it's better to be charged. Generally speaking, you'd rather be charged by state than federal prosecutors because the laws and the sentencing is tougher at the federal level. Separate, big breath here, separate and apart from that, Steve Bannon also received a subpoena from the January 6th committee. As always, he refused to testify. He said, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to listen to Donald Trump here, who's telling me that I have an executive privilege. Um, he was tried for that. He was convicted for that federal contempt of Congress. He's been sentenced to four months in prison. He's now appealing. He's not serving his time. He won't serve his time until his appeals are over. If he loses his appeals, um, he's not going to get bailed out with a pardon this time. But this is a guy who's dodged some bullets, but now he's been convicted federally. 
um, and he should do four months. And he's got that state case as well. So he's managed to sort of dodge between the raindrops for years now. But I do think his time is running out. And how much time he ultimately will do, I guess, remains to be seen. But but accountability has caught up with him. He actually looks as if he was he's in jail, even if he isn't. Maybe uh, maybe he'll he'll look different when he goes to jail. Some people be watching this, Ali, and think, oh, here we have another CNN guy going after Trump, going after Bannon, blah, blah, blah. You know, what about Joe Biden? He stole documents. Um, there's an interesting piece on CNN politics in which you're interviewed about comparing the legal cases involving yeah. uh, Trump and Bannon. Is there a false equivalence being created between Bannon and and not between Bannon, Biden. between Biden and uh, that was a Freudian slip, but Biden <laughs> is not Bannon. Biden and Trump. Uh, yeah. Do networks like CNN just go after Trump and his circle and forget about the Joe Bidens who are just as guilty of, of criminality? This is certainly the Fox position. I, I, boy, I take issue with a lot of the premises in that question. I don't know where to start. Yeah, First of all, I, I mean, they weren't, they no, were, they weren't uh, assertions. No. They were just observations. For yeah, you I, I don't agree that CNN or, or my, me or my colleagues have it in for Trump or, you know, salivating to get him. I think we don't like, let's face it, I don't like him either, Ellie. You don't like the guy. If he went to jail, you wouldn't exactly be disappointed or upset. I don't, I don't care what my pol my political view my personal view of donald trump has no bearing on, on the work i do in fact i'm quite critical of a lot of the prosecutors go who've gone after him i think for overstepping uh, both on air and in the book at, at times um as to the question between biden and trump um those cases are certainly not identical but i do think there are legitimate questions and i say this in the piece about about joe biden's conduct and how it squares up with donald trump i also say this in the piece that you that you cited even if one could go through the relevant factors, number of documents, were they cooperative? Did they obstruct justice on down the line and differentiate Trump and Biden? And based on what we know now, there does seem to be differences. Um, I believe that the Biden case and, and the, the Mike Pence case that's come up since then will make it more difficult for Merrick Garland as a practical matter to charge Donald Trump because a lot of people look at this, and I think fairly, understandably, as it's all documents cases. It's all classified documents. They all have them. There's no intent there. Now, you may be able to get over that hurdle, but let's remember, Merrick Garland is very much averse to politics. Anything that even looks political. I actually criticize him in the book. I think he's gone too far in the direction of refusing to do things that are necessary if they might look political. And, and I think it's difficult to see a scenario where Merrick Garland ultimately says, I'm going to indict and seek to imprison Donald Trump, who's running for the presidency against Joe Biden, the guy who appointed me and who heads the executive branch that I now work in. I'm going to give Joe Biden a pass and I'm going to give Mike Pence a pass. That may well be how it plays out on paper, but I think that's a really difficult position to land in as a political and a practical matter. In other words, there are many more episodes of this coming up, for better or worse. Um, You've also commented the big legal case, of course, in the United States at the moment, or the, the great moral case is the murder in Memphis uh, of a young, uh, young African-American man, um, Nichols. Um, you comment on this. Uh, what's the current legal state? Um, yeah. uh, you suggest uh, on CNN, I think it was uh, yesterday, that the Nichols prosecutors have charged as aggressively as they can, but there's a risk. What, what, yeah. what sense do you make of the current legal landscape? Are these 
five former police officers, uh, are they going to go to jail? So as I, as I said on air on CNN a couple of days ago, I do not believe this case has been overcharged by prosecutors. In any case, there's always a range of discretion as a prosecutor. This is not a mechanical process. I've been in this position many, many times where there are various charges that could fit. I think within that range, the prosecutors here have gone to the aggressive end of that range. So I think they're within reason. I think they're justified. But as I said, these are on the aggressive end of that range. Here's why it's aggressive. All five of these police, former police officers are charged with second degree murder in Tennessee, which under Tennessee law means a knowing killing of another human being. You don't have to know as a mathematical certainty, but it has to be reasonably certain that your actions will result in the person's death. Um, I think there are gradations here. Um, and let's keep in mind, really important to understand, this jury eventually is not going to return one verdict and just say guilty, not guilty. They're going to return 35 verdicts, five defendants, seven charges each. And so what the jury's job will be is to look at each charge as to each defendant and decide, has it been met? And different police officers here, are they all culpable morally? Yes. Are they all you know responsible in, in the sort of broad sense? Absolutely. But legally, what a judge will tell a jury is you are to decide on each case, each count against each defendant individually. And some of these defendants engage in more direct, more aggressive, more vicious physical contact than others. Yes, some of them held him up. Some of them punched him with their fists. Some of them uh, hit him with a baton. I believe that some of the defendants, you know, among these defendants who may not have done that, I think it's going to be hard, not impossible, but tricky to convict them of murder. And let's keep in mind, there are lesser charges here, aggravated assault, the kidnapping, that may give a jury a way to sort of compromise, which, which does happen from time to time. So I think the right way to calibrate is these are appropriate charges. They're on the aggressive side. And this is not a sure thing. No, very few cases are ever sure things. And I don't think this one's a sure thing. They will get convicted. They will all get convicted, in my view, of serious crimes. I'm not sure that that top charge will stick on all them. And I should say, Ben Crump, the attorney for the family, has said the exact same thing. Ellie, talking to you is is quite an experience. You have enormous <laughs> energy and erudition. You're a, you're a media you. star in your own right. What drives you? Why, why have you dedicated your life to this uh, are you driven yeah. by uh, by the need to for justice um or, or you're just fascinated with the law or, or maybe all, both and other things too that's a great question so you know i spent 14 years as a prosecutor trying cases and one of the wonderful things about being a prosecutor is you get to make a real difference you get to stand up in front of a jury you have to explain sometimes complicated scenarios to them in a way they can understand. And as a result of that, your work makes a tangible difference in the world. Um, there's only so long you can be a prosecutor for. You just burn out at, at, a certain at a certain point. And I started doing this by accident. I had, I had no plans. I'm going to go into media. It was the last thing I ever thought of. But when I left the prosecutor's office, it was the summer of 2018 when the Mueller investigation was full throttle. And every day, every story was Mueller. And so um, a friend of mine was doing this and she said, would you want to try this? I said, absolutely. That looks fun. And what I love about doing it now is a couple of things. One, you still get that kind of trial thrill, right? I mean, you know, the camera's on, it's live, it's on you. Um, and I, I like that adrenaline. But more importantly, I really enjoy explaining things to whether it's a jury or people watching on TV or people watching this uh, this podcast, this broadcast. Um, I, I think people are, I found are, are 
remarkably interested in the law, want to understand it. It can be intimidating sometimes. And so I try to never dumb it down, but I try to make it as digestible as I can for people. And the response is so gratifying because people care about this. They really do care about our laws and, and how they impact our, our, our entire politics and our entire country. So I find it enormously satisfying and gratifying. And, and uh, this was never the plan, but, but I'm thrilled that this is where things have gone. So being, what you're suggesting then is being a, the, the skills you learn as a prosecutor and the skills required to be a, a media personality, in some ways they're the same. It's a question of performance. Absolutely. I mean, the number one task that faces prosecutors and I think people in media is how do I take a complicated set of facts or a complicated concept and boil it down in a way that intelligent, interested, non-experts can understand and care about. And I think that applies equally to trials and equally to media. We have less time in media. You know, in trials, you can give a 90-minute address. In media, we have six-minute segments. Um, so it's even a little bit more of, a, of an exercise in compacting. But yes, a lot of carryover, for sure. Well, I know you need to have lunch before your next session, <laughs> so I'm going to... Get you to your final question, Ellie. Ellie, um, as a prosecutor, as a media, as a media celebrity now, um, tell us in very simple language why the American system needs to be changed and what to do in, in, in just a couple of minutes. I know this is a complicated question, but if anyone can do it, Ellie yeah. Honig, you can. Author <laughs> of Untouchable, how powerful people get away with it. So convince our audience of, of why there's a need to reform the system. You know, we prosecutors, Andrew, we love our cliches. And, and one of our favorite cliches, I don't know, maybe it's not a cliche, but one of our favorite ideas, mantras, is no person is above the law and that we do our jobs without fear or favor. That is central to not just our justice system, but our justice system is one of the three pillars of our government. And I think in, in many ways, the most important because it is the most powerful check on the other two. And the truth is we don't have a justice system that's exactly equal for everyone in a lot of different ways. Um, I say in the book, if you look at the statue, the famous statue of Lady Justice, right? Um, she's not blind. We like to say justice is blind. She's not actually blind. She's wearing a blindfold. And as I say in the book, it turns out once in a while, she takes a peek at who's in front of her. And that sort of contravenes our most basic founding principles that everyone is equal. This is one of many grand goals that we have aspired to reach since the founding of this country and that we should continue to pursue. I write this book not because I claim it's going to magically cure everything, but what I'm trying to do is bring some awareness and push us just a little bit in that direction towards true equality, true equal justice.